All right. Ooh, that was hot. Sorry. Coming in hot. Coming in hot. All right. Let's go ahead and we'll get started tonight for this in some sense is our last summer Wednesday night schedule. Uh, So what will happen next Wednesday night is the uh, senior adult pastor's potluck night. So you you determine whether or not you fit senior adult uh, pastor's potluck, but we've been doing pastor's potluck on Thursdays at lunch, but there are some people who say, hey, I would love to come to that, but I work and I'm not able to do that. So we wanted to do it in the evening. So we're doing it next Wednesday night, uh, six, what, six o'clock? All right, six o'clock. We'll send out reminders in your Sunday school class, but six o'clock next Wednesday night. It's a country western theme, is that right? So Carl will wear his cowboy hat next next Wednesday night. We'll see how that goes. Probably not. Okay, never mind. Yeah, I don't have one either, so I'm not going to be any help, but... uh, I'll see what I can do. So next Wednesday night, though, we're really hoping that will be uh, a really fun night for senior adults getting together. It's also going to lead in preparing for revival services coming up in September. So next Wednesday night, if you know people that would want to be a part of that pastor's potluck, uh, be sure and remind them. And like I said, we'll remind your Sunday school classes uh, this Sunday. Then the following Wednesday night, we kind of get back into a more regular Wednesday night routine. The meal the Wednesday night meal doesn't start until the Wednesday after Labor Day uh, when you get into September because Karen had to be out on vacation, and so our kitchen crew is going to gear up in September. So just kind of putting that out there a little bit further, Wednesday night meal will start when we get into September. Um, I think that's all. Jim, anything for Sunday night with the school serve day? We're wanting people to meet here. Okay. This Sunday night, if you are able uh, and want to come out and help with any of the school service projects, uh, meet here at 5 o'clock, and we'll go out to various schools and, and help with different things going on. So I want to be able to do that. Any, any prayer requests, things going on that you all know of for our church that we can be praying for? Other than Matt, Matt's phone, pray for Matt's phone. So... Uh, that's why we love the case on our phone. So, all right, let me. Uh, I'm going to pray for us after I do. Zach's going to teach again, but he's also going to stop about 10 to 15 minutes early, just so we can do some question and answer about apologetics. Zach is always thinking about apologetics. How do we know what we believe? Why do we believe what we believe? If you have some general questions you want to ask him about that, uh, we want to be able to take some time to do that. So you're going to have some time at the end to ask some questions about apologetics. Uh, so we, we want to give you plenty of time to do that. All right, let me pray for us, and we will get started. Father, thank you for what you have been doing in our lives and in our church throughout this summer. Uh, we know that summer takes people so many different directions, families in different places, people returning from vacations over the next week. Uh, God, thank you for your faithfulness to us this past summer. God, prepare our hearts as we move into a new school year. God, I pray for our, our senior adults and our church as we look toward revival time in, in uh, September and we have the pastor's potluck next Wednesday night. God, continue to, to guide us as we minister to one another and reach out to the community. 
God, thank you for the connection we have with local schools and an and opportunity to serve in that way uh, next Sunday. God, thank you for people like Zach, uh, their heart to uh, love you, to serve the church, to be a light in, uh, in the academy where he studies and, and teaches. And God, I pray for him and his family. God, lead them in the years ahead. God, wherever you take them, God, that they would continue to love one another, continue to love you, and that, God, that you would use them in, in powerful ways for your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, guys. If you didn't get a handout from last week, those are back there uh, on the table. It says, uh, who wrote the Gospels? And we're almost done with that. We're going to finish that up, and then we'll move on to uh, internal evidence uh, for the truth of the Gospels. So that's another handout that's back there. So if you're missing one, they're back in the back. Um, So I'd like to start us off with a verse of Scripture. This is 1 John 1, 3. It says, uh, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. That's kind of a reminder of what we're talking about here. We talked last week about how we have a chain of testimonial evidence, attestations from people in antiquity saying, hey, this is who wrote the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Going all the way back to about 107 A.D., um, you know, so just after the death of the uh, uh, disciple John, and, um, and then we had internal evidence of their use in, in, in manuscripts and, and writings and, and, and sermon notes and stuff like that. So they were widely used. And I had a map that I threw up there, <clears throat> and it showed, you know, uh, uh, Irenaeus in, in France, and then uh, Carthage, and then and then Alexandria, and then and and uh, <clears throat> can't remember who the other one was. We had all these guys all over the place saying the same types of things. So it wasn't localized. It wasn't something that, you know, the Church of Rome came up with and they just pushed out. It's something that all of the, the churches across, across the old world agreed upon, all right? <clears throat> so we came up, used that to show that, hey, we, it looks like we have really good evidence to show that the Gospels are genuine, meaning they were written by who they were ascribed to. So what we're interested in tonight is looking at something... <clears throat> Uh, finishing that up, and then talking about their authenticity, whether they're substantially true, okay? So let's finish up with what we were doing last week. We were at uh, the negative arguments against the genuineness of the Gospels, um, specifically talking about the points of Bart Ehrman, and you guys will remember that we finished this up. This is the first one, and where uh, <clears throat> Bart is saying, hey, this is, there's this weird thing in Matthew where he keeps talking about himself in the third person, if he's talking about himself in the third person, that seems like it's evidence that he, had, he didn't actually write that, right? And specifically, he's talking about Matthew 9, 9. As Jesus passed from there, he saw a man called Matthew, supposedly Matthew's writing this, uh, at the tax booth, and he said to him, Jesus said to Matthew, follow me. And he, Matthew, rose and followed him, Jesus. So it sounds like, oh yeah, he is talking in the third person. That's really weird. That's strange. Why would he do that? And this is actually a very old argument. You know, we talked about Augustine. 
dealing with Faustus the Manichaean, and this was an argument that he had used around A.D. 400, very long time ago. Same argument that, um, <clears throat> that Ehrman is using. And uh, <clears throat> Augustine's reply was, hey, it happens all the time. So we look at secular uh, writings, and we see the Anabasis of Xenophon, and he used the third person all throughout that, not just in one section, but all throughout the Anabasis. We also see it in uh, Caesar's commentaries, Josephus' Jewish, Jewish War, Nicolaus' History, uh, and on and on and on. This was a very common thing in ancient writings, to refer to oneself in the third person. That's just how they did it. So that's no reason to believe that Matthew didn't actually write his gospel. <clears throat> so that's where we ended up last week. Uh, but Bart wasn't done. So Bart says, uh, in Matthew, there is not a word about Jesus being God. And John, that's precisely who he is. He's saying, that's weird, right? Um, these Gospels, they don't match up at all. You know, Matthew doesn't say anything about Jesus being God, and John's the whole time. He's doing miracles. He's God, blah, blah, blah. Well, let's see what Matthew actually says. <clears throat> So in Matthew 1, 3, it says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That, if you're not familiar with the reference, is an obvious reference to Isaiah, which Matthew was a Jew writing to other Jews, and his audience would know that reference, right? They would get that, Right? And Isaiah 9.6, <clears throat> which he's referring to, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. It sure sounds like Matthew is saying that Jesus was God. But maybe that's a weird coincidence. Maybe it's just that one instance. Let's read some more. Matthew 3.3, 3, For this is who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord. Make the paths straight. Now, he says Lord. That doesn't necessarily mean God. Unless you realize that, hey, this guy's a Jew writing to a Jewish audience. And he's referring back to Isaiah. So if we go back and look at Isaiah, we see, hey, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. But in our English translations, it's usually Lord all caps, Right? And there's a very specific reason for that, because he's using a very specific name, a proper name for God, not just Adonai. He's using God's proper name. You guys might reference that or might recognize that on the slide. Now, quiz. How would a Jew pronounce that name? Trick question. Trick question. Well, not just that. They wouldn't. Out of respect for the name of God, they would not pronounce that. And uh, they would usually say Adonai, which is what you know, we see in Matthew um, and all throughout the New Testament. Um, in modern-day Ju Judaism, they use Hashem, um, so that's a common name. But they will not use that name. They will not pronounce it. But they would know, his, Matthew's audience would know who is, he's referring to in that passage and that it's not just Adonai, it's not a God, it's God's proper name, right? Okay, that seems like Matthew's really saying something about Jesus being God. But, hey, 
Maybe it's a fluke. Two, two times. Let's see. All right, Matthew uh, chapter 9. This is when the, uh, the Jesus was speaking and the friends kind of brought their paralytic friend and dropped him in down through the roof. <clears throat> and Jesus said, uh, and, and it's, Matthew says, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your, your, sins, sings, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. Well, well, that seems like a strong reaction, right? Who can forgive sins as far as the Jews are concerned? Only God. It's clear the, the Jews, the Pharisees, the scribes around that time, they knew what he was saying by saying, hey, your sins are forgiven. Um, they knew what was going on. <clears throat> and then Jesus replies, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. <clears throat> he then said to the paralytic, rise up, pick up your bed, and go. <clears throat> that Son of Man reference is actually an Old Testament reference to divinity, the divinity of Jesus. And he uses that several times throughout uh, the New Testament. I think one of the scriptures from Sunday was, is, was a reference to that as well. So it seems quite plain that, no, Matthew was saying, hey, Jesus is God. There's no contradiction between uh, John and Matthew at all. So it looks like Bart is wrong again. But he has more objections that are worth considering. He says there, that's talking about the, uh, the gospel writers, their ignorance of Palestinian geography and Jewish custom, customs suggests they compose their works somewhere else in the empire, Roman empire that is. Um, and he gives us an example of this, and he refers to it as an error. He says in Mark 7.30, indicates that the Pharisees and all the Jews washed their hands before eating so as to observe the tradition of the elders. This is not true. Most Jews did not engage in this ritual. Well, let's look at some historical evidence and see what we can see about that. In Exodus, uh, chapter 30 and 40, a little bit is 20, the priests are called to observe hand-washing and practices, but the people are not. Uh-oh, maybe Bart's right. But the question is, did the Jews during Jesus' time observe that? Now, there was something very different about the Jews during Jesus' time. This is second, second temple period, so... Uh, after 1819 BC to about 70 80, that's the Second Temple period. And during that time, the Jews were uh, almost fanatical about tradition, right? The big kind of party in the Jewish religion at that time, or one of the big ones, one of the really big ones, was the Pharisees, right? We're very familiar with them. And they're very fanatical about following tradition. We see that throughout the New Testament. Um, and even today, I don't know if you guys have any friends who are practicing Jews, uh, but they, you know, practicing Jews tend to follow tradition quite strongly. So I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with what a Shabbat elevator is, but it's an elevator that you don't have to press any buttons to use, right? Because you can't press buttons because that's considered work, right? Um, my professor, uh, who a lot of this research came from, uh, Tim McGrew, he tells a story of being at a conference, 
and there's a lady trying to get, he, he's inside, and she's, trying, trying to, she, she's outside trying to get in. She's trying to get into the stairway area. And there's an elevator right over there, but she needs to get upstairs, and he let her in. He said, what, what's going on? And uh, he said, she said, I'm sorry, I need to use the stairs. And he realized it was a Sabbath, and she could not use the elevator, so she was going up the stairs. So this is really common today still. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that all the people uh, during that time did it. But let's see if we can find some more evidence that supports that. So in the Gospel of John, this is the wedding at Cana, uh, in that section. And John says, Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Okay. You guys are familiar with what five-gallon buckets look like, right? They're this big. Right? So we're talking 20 to 30 gallon buckets. That's a lot of water if there's only a handful of people who need to wash their hands. Um, but maybe, maybe John's, you know, maybe he messed up too. Maybe we need, you know, five, 600 gallons of water for some other reason. Or sorry, that's a bit of an exaggeration. 120-ish, 180, somewhere around there. Um, but maybe he's wrong. But that seems to be telling. So let's look outside of the Bible at some other Jewish evidence. Uh, this is 200 B.C.-ish uh, from the letter of Aristeus. And is the custom of all the Jews, they washed their hands in the sea and prayed to God. Not the, not the uh, priest, not all the Pharisees, all the Jews. Uh, okay, one might say, hey, that's too far back. That's, you know, 200-ish years before Jesus lived. Things change. Okay, let's look to the time of Jesus. So Philo, 8030-ish, and the special law says, the law <clears throat> does not look upon those who have even touched a dead body, which has met with a natural death as pure and clean, until they have washed and purified themselves with sprinklings and ablutions. Now, that doesn't say the priest. That, says, that basically includes anybody. So that seems to be quite telling. That's during Jesus' time, and that's applying to anyway, anybody. And actually, if we go back and look at different Jewish writings during that time, the Mishnah, the Yadadim, uh, you see references to this all the time. <clears throat> so the scholarship basically says, yeah, it looks like during that time, the Jews were pretty fanatical about this, and this was commonplace. Everybody did it. And actually, uh, the, uh, the guys who were in the fortress of Masada uh, around 70 AD, even those guys out in the middle of nowhere, they had these large, basically kind of weird bathtub-looking things to be able to do that. And the Essenes who lived out in the desert also had... Um, places to store water so that they could wash their hands. Uh, so this is very common throughout that time. Not, uh, not weird at all. So it looks like Bart's negative evidence kind of struck out. So we looked at positive evidence, that the, positive evidence last week that the Gospels were genuine, and we kind of 
look at some of the negative evidence against them, um, and it doesn't seem to hold much water. So what we're going to do now is if you got that second handout, we're going to move on to that. And no, I'm not planning on covering all of this tonight. I wanted you to have all the information, but I'm not going to cover it all tonight. We're going to get the, the big parts. Um, so we're going to look at positive case. Yeah, if you don't have one, I handed out a bunch of them. If you don't have one, there's some on the table, and Owen has some. Um, we're going to look at a positive case for the authenticity of the Gospels. So last week we were looking for the genuineness, and now we're carrying, we want to look at the authenticity of the Gospels. <clears throat> and by internal evidence, I mean what can we find within the Bible itself. Um, some other time maybe I'll be able to do it. I have a whole presentation on external evidence of the authenticity where we look at uh, uh, non-Christian historians and what they said. Um, but tonight we're going to look at internal evidence, mainly because this is something that you don't need any special tools for. You can do it at home. It's, you just need a Bible, and you can do this at home with uh, you know, family, friends, kids, whatever, whoever. <clears throat> so we kind of finished up talking about the genuine aspect of uh, the evidence for genuineness. Um, what we're going to do now kind of supports that still but we're going to move on to this internal evidence for the authenticity. And the goal is to begin building what's called a cumulative case, where we add evidence upon evidence that the authors of the Gospels were well-informed and habitually truthful, right? So now we have to ask a question. Why are there four Gospels? Why not, you know, two or one what does it matter? Um, how many of you guys have ever done the, you know, reading through the gospel or through the Bible in a year thing? A few of you? Okay. When doing that, if you start in Matthew and kind of start reading through M Matthew, you get to Mark, and if you're paying close attention, you notice, hey, some of this stuff sounds very similar. And if you're really ambitious and you, like, start cross-referencing stuff, you realize, oh, man, even some of the words, it's, it's almost word for word. That's kind of weird. And then if you move on to Luke, you'll see, you know, some new information. But once again, it's some stuff, it's, it looks like it's repeated. That's weird. Uh, and then you get to John, and John's different uh, than the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, but even some of the, the scenes, like the feeding the 5,000 and stuff like that, that's still there. Um, so, not quite the same, but you see some repetition and whatnot. <clears throat> um, but why four? Well, hopefully part of what we're going to get through tonight will answer that. Um, so, we have another question. Can we tell by comparing two passages of Scripture with one another that both are authentic and credible historical records? Um, and our first natural reply is, yeah. Uh, we can find two passages where the different writers tell the same, the same story, but you know, maybe they use slightly different words. But at this point, I want you to let your inner skeptic loose for just a little bit and ask some tougher questions, right? <clears throat> what if one of the documents had been copied from one of the other documents. 
does that cause us a problem as far as testimony supporting testimony? If you have a, you know, if you go out and get the Norman transcript or whatever paper you read, and then get another copy of it that just has a different author's like name in the article, they say all the same stuff. That doesn't count as supporting testimony, right? That looks like it's just copies of the same document. That's not what we're going for. Um, so some people would say, you know, hey, maybe that's what's going on with our Gospels. But can this be ruled out with internal evidence alone? And I would say, yes, it can. And the way it's done is with an odd little thing called an undesigned coincidence, right? That's a not a normal word uh, used together, at least. <clears throat> but what these things are is, like, sometimes you have two different, author, two different authors who write things that are interlocked in a way that nobody would expect. It seems very unlikely that one would have copied the other because it's just small little details that are connecting that don't make a lot of sense for somebody to have intentionally thrown in there. Um, for example, someone maybe mentioned in a passing detail some question that was raised earlier, right? So we're looking for little details that connect the books kind of like a jigsaw puzzle, and then lock them together. So that's what we're going to spend the rest of the time looking at tonight. Because, as you can see by the length of my handout, this seems to occur pretty often. <clears throat> but we could say, eh, well, why aren't these just forgeries, right? Just fictions, stories that people made up. Um, well, when people make up stories, that's not how it works, right? If I can make up a story about a gospel, I'm not going to leave any like loose ends. I'm going to tie it up in a pretty bow at the very end with nothing to worry about and no one to question me and no one to say, ha, got you right there, you're missing that. No, if I'm writing it and coming up with all the details, I'm going to put in as much effort as I can and not leave any details missing, right? That's what forgeries, that's what fictions look like. Um, also, if you're writing a fiction, you can't control what anybody writes after you, right? Like, years later, or separately from you. So, you're not going to know what other people might say, and you can't control that. Um, and you would, you, know, you would really want to be able to do that, but that's just not the way fictions work. But you would expect to find that kind of puzzle piece interlocking stuff when somebody's talking about actual events that happen, the real world, right? You would expect that type of stuff because it's real events told by different people. Um, you know, and they're going to remember different things and think some things are more important to notice and, than others. So that's what undesigned coincidences look like. <clears throat> and that's what we're going to be dealing with the rest of the night. So <clears throat> let's start out with an example. This is, comes from Matthew uh, chapter 8. And it says, And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve them. And that evening, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits, and, a word, <clears throat> and with a word healed all who were sick. Now, 
if you had somebody like Jesus in town who was like curing people and you know, healing the sick and casting out demons, why would you wait until the evening? Why wouldn't you just barge in whenever? Hey, Jesus, come take care of this, right? It's like when we go to the doctor. Like, if you call a doctor and try to get an appointment because you're not feeling good, you have the flu or something like that, you don't want to wait, you know, three days down the road, six months down the road. You know, you don't even want to wait till tomorrow if you can. You want to do it right now. And people haven't changed that much, right? So why would they wait until evening? Matthew doesn't say anything. But yeah, if we go to Mark, Mark actually tells us the same account. On the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, as Jesus, and immediately left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with fever. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick and impressed by demons. Okay, it looks like Matthew raises a question, and Mark answers it. He gives us a reason why that's the case. Um, <clears throat> now, remember, these are those same Jews who were devout about all kinds of varied, you know, varied traditions. They were pretty fanatical about things. On the Sabbath, they are not going to leave. They're not going to go out until sundown, right? Um, and once the sun goes down on the Sabbath, they are now free to go um, to Paul's, or Peter's house and, and see Jesus. So technically, it may be plausible that Matthew copied from Mark. If he was, the, if he was copying from Mark, though, he would have included this information. If he had access to it, why wouldn't he put it in there, right? I mean, he had, if he had the information, he would have included all of it. Why leave that detail out and kind of leave us wondering, why did they not show up till the evening? So it seems likely that that's the case. And obviously, <clears throat> Mark didn't copy for Matthew because he had more information than Matthew did. So it seems like they're interconnected, um, and that gives us a ring of authenticity. So... If you all want to write notes, this is one thing you can do tonight. As we go through these, you can connect, draw a little square with the four names of the gospel writers and see how they connect together. Right now, looks like Mark is intersupported. Uh, Mark is supporting Matthew. But one coincidence of that sort could be an accident, right? Um, it could be, you know, just, a, you know, just this fluke that happens or whatnot. But it's weird if you start seeing a lot of these. It's like playing a game in which a high hand is, you know, something like four aces. And you get a guy who's sitting there, and he gets dealt an, eight, dealt an ace, and then another ace, and then a third ace, and then a fourth ace. Wow, that's, I mean, the probabilities of that happening are pretty low. But even more so, if on the next hand he gets another ace, and another ace, and another, then you're going to start saying, okay, what's going on here? That doesn't look like, you know, did you pay off somebody? You know, something along those lines. And that seems like if we run into a bunch of these undesigned coincidences, that looks like uh, something that we're kind of running into that similar situation. So let's see what, what else we can find. So <clears throat> Luke 9, uh, 36 this is where uh, uh, Jesus goes with his disciples, and you know, he is transfigured. Uh, the disciples kind of 
fall asleep or, uh, yeah. And when they realize what's going on, they wake up and they realize, hey, there's Jesus. He's hanging out with Moses and Elijah. That's weird. And then it ends with, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. What? Why? I mean, okay. Like I said, people haven't changed that much, right? So if, if Owen's hanging out and we realize, hey, he's talking to Moses and Elijah, and we all are not realize that it's all of us seeing this and we're not hallucinating, are we going to say anything about that? Yeah, probably so. That's, that's a really unexpected thing that nobody saw coming, right? But it says the, uh, the disciples just didn't say anything. And then Luke leaves it at that. Doesn't tell us why. That's really, really strange. But we can go over to Mark 9, 9, and it says, As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus said to them, uh, Jesus charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Okay, now we know why they didn't tell anybody. It's because Jesus actually charged them to. Right? Another one of those things. Uh, uh, Luke didn't give us the information. He just gives us, leaves us with a question. And then Mark gives us the reason why that occurred. Um, and Luke just records the obedience. Right? So we have Matthew supporting Mark, and now Mark supporting Luke. Right? So let's do a couple together, and this one's really fun. Um, <clears throat> so this is a setting from the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark. Uh, he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were go- coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. Then he commanded them to come uh, all to sit down in groups on the green grass. Okay. Has anybody actually been to Israel before? What's the grass look like? You remember. Looks kind of like Oklahoma right now. That's, that is uh, on a mountain uh, in, uh, close to Galilee, if I remember correctly, uh, around December-ish. Um, I have not been to Israel, but I've done all the fun classes about you know, geography and whatnot. And from what I'm told, most of the year, that's what it looks like. Brown, kind of tough, you know. Uh, not very bright. So where is this green that we're, that, uh, that we're seeing here? Why, why green? That's weird. Um, and actually, that's one of the few times the word green is actually used uh, in the New Testament. So we're just left hanging there, you know, about this weird green grass mentioning. Why, why is that going on? But then we can look over in John. <clears throat> John 6, 4 says, now the Passover, the Feast of the Jews, was at hand. Okay. Uh, turns out, Passover happens during the growing season uh, in Israel. Uh, and at Passover, guess what would be on the road? Lots and lots of people, pilgrims, right, going to Jerusalem. Um, actually, Josephus says that it was millions of people on the road. Well, okay. Even if he's exaggerating a little bit, and say we cut it down to half a million, you know, 500,000 or so, that's still a lot of people. We're not talking like, you know, massively paved highways. We're talking, you know, 
tough roads, um, and so they're crowded. There's lots of people, you know, coming and going, lots of people on the way. <clears throat> so we have this explanation now of why there were so many people there, right, that we didn't get um, in the passage from Luke. <clears throat> and we have um, why it was green, right? We just have this little thing about green grass. Now we know why the people are there, and now we know why it was green. And John tells us that. But John doesn't tell us anything else. He just says, hey, it was Passover, Feast of the Jews, right? Um, so he's not telling us about the green grass and about all the people, right? So those are actually <clears throat> interconnected. And, sorry, and Mark is support, uh, John is supporting Mark. All right. I got time for one more. This one's pretty good, too. All right. I have 12 of these. We're not going to go through all 12. This is the last one. Uh, but they're all on your handout. So this is from Matthew 14. <clears throat> At the time of Herod the Tetrarch, um, this would have been Herod uh, Antipas, uh, heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead, and that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. All right. Here's some weird things that are going on in this passage. Number one, why is Herod talking to his servants? All right. And how did Matthew find out about this? You know, Matthew wasn't tight with Herod. He wasn't hanging out in Herod's household all the time. How did he know what was going on? And we don't, we don't get any of that in Matthew. We just get this passage about what he says. And then there's this weird little passage from Luke that I don't think I've ever heard anyone preach about it because it, you know, it's more of a historical thing than anything. And Luke says, and Joanna, the, the wife of Chuzah, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others who provided for their means. All Luke is talking about is women who had ministered to Jesus and the disciple. He's just men mentioning a list of names. But all of a sudden we realize, hey, Herod's household manager was part of the group that the disciples knew and spoke with and hung out with. And so now we see there's a connection there that you wouldn't expect. Um, there's no reason other than just listing these people that Luke mentions this. <clears throat> and then, but previously, all we had was the mention of what Herod said in Matthew. All right, so we get this network that keeps growing and interconnecting. All right, now, let me see if I can get to where my slide was going this is, if I made it through the entire presentation, this is what it ends up looking like. And these are just a few. It's 12. Um, that's it. There, there's, there's a lot more that's to be done and seen there. And like I said, these are very simple things that just require your Bible and your time. You don't have to, you know, get a degree in archaeology. You don't have to go to Israel. Uh, most of this is just reading through and realizing these weird, like, interconnected things that nobody really pays attention to most of the time. Um, <clears throat> and if we can say these 12 things are connected and there's more, it seems like this is past the point of being, hey, this is just luck. This is just chance. No, it seems like this has the ring of truth. This is not some fairy tale, right? Fairy tales aren't this neat, right? 
Uh, you don't get this type of thing between multiple authors like that. It's more likely to be, hey, this happened in real life, and people recorded it, and that's what you get. So I'm going to wind down now. Finish up. So after this presentation, I think we have good evidence to say that the Gospels are genuine. They were written by who they are said to have been written by. And based on the internal evidence alone, it looks like they're authentic. I think there's a lot more that can be said. Actually, most of this research comes from um, a professor of mine, and when he does this, it's, I think, an eight-week-long seminar, like, you know, hour and 15 minutes each time to cover all the material and evaluate all the evidence. So there's a lot more there. There's a lot more there. And you don't have to do philosophy to do this type of stuff. I love philosophy. Uh, that's, uh, that's what I teach. That's what I study. But you don't have to do this. You just have to, you know, be a little detective-ish, right, and actually spend some time studying this type of stuff. So all that being said, uh, I need to end and set aside some time for a Q&A. So uh, any questions specifically about this or questions about apologet apologetics in general um, that you guys have, I am here and willing to answer. And if you don't ask, he's going to ask me tons of questions. And his are probably going to be hard, so y'all give me something <laughs> not too hard. <laughs> hardest question. <laughs> um, it's the, yeah, I mean, really legitimately, that is the question, right? And that is like um, all throughout our culture. If you watch TV, like anything that has, you know, any reference to God, eventually gonna, somebody's going to say, but why does God allow all this evil and suffering to happen, right? Um, and my strategy to begin with is to ask questions. Why you know, what, what type of suffering are you asking about, and why are, you, why are you asking that? Just so that I can know how to answer the question. Because there are some people who are going to want a very, you know, cognitive, rational answer. They want, you know, what's the theory, what's the facts, what's, what, what are the kind of complex things going on? Um, and, and how does this even work with God existing and those types of things? Um, but that's not really most of the time. Most of the time, somebody has been hurt. Somebody has experienced great suffering. Um, so usually, I start by saying, hey, why are you asking that? So I get an idea of what, where they're coming from. Um, and then I say, well, two things that we can do. First, you know, what, what can we look at to see if the answer, if there even is a God, right? Because um, most of the times these people are, 
you know, they, they, maybe they've been in church, um, or maybe they've never set, put their foot in, and usually that's something to find out too. Um, uh, but usually I start with, you know, well, do we have any reasons to believe there is a God? And if there is a God, then let's try to figure out what the character of God is so we can figure out how to answer that question. Um, and <clears throat> it depends on who you're talking to. My general response, if I have to give like a 10-second question, is what well, seems like there is a God, and it seems like he may know something that we don't know. He has access to something, something that we don't know. Um, and that's where I start, but that's not it. That's, that's the short answer. And then I generally talk about, you know, stuff like this at a low level, um, but give reasons of why there is a God, and then try to figure out, okay, what, if there was such a God who knew everything, what would that God do to alleviate suffering? If he had to allow suffering to exist so that we can be free, you know, maybe there's good reasons that he allowed it to exist, right? Um, and maybe it's so that we can be free. Maybe it's so that we can help others, right? Um, what is there in the character of God that, uh, that we can say about that? And that's not an easy thing to answer. Um, people have written tons and tons of books, uh, and most of the time that's, I've been dealing with that question for years, and I still don't have a great answer. I have some ideas about how to answer it, but that's usually where I go. Um, but ultimately, you want to try to realize if, the, if those people are ready to deal with like evidence or whatnot, or if they're dealing with actual pain. If they're dealing with pain and they're still struggling with that, most of the time you just need to be a good, you know, a good person and listen to them talk about their pain. Um, and once, if you can get past that, then you can talk about this type of stuff. <clears throat> More questions? Well, no, I, I'm not doing that. <laughs> no, that's like my side project. Yeah. So, um, so the side project is um, why, why should we believe in miracles? Um, if we should believe in miracles at all, or do we have any good reasons to believe in miracles? Um, and it largely depends on our people, you know, if people are reliable, and can we trust testimony from a long, long time ago? Um, and if we can, can we test, tr trust testimony about, you know, miracles, right? People doing crazy things like, you know, raising somebody from the dead. Can we actually believe that type of stuff? Um, and it has to do with whether we should, and it gets kind of weird and formal, and I start doing math about why we should believe these types of things. Uh, but it seems to me, my conclusion is that, and it really relies a lot on the, the stuff that we've kind of talked about this week and last week. We have tons of evidence from people testifying and saying, yeah, these things happen. These, we have reasons to believe these were real-life people. And they weren't, you know, some people say, hey, they're uneducated. Well, you know, even an uneducated first-century Jew realizes that people aren't supposed to come back from the dead. That's not normal. And when they say stuff like that, you know, they really meant it. Um, and so it has to do with why we should believe those types of things, and if we can know, you know, anything from that. So. 
Yeah, uh, I, it, it does. I think, I think there, are, there have been modern-day reports that um, you could apply a certain criteria to and say, should we believe this? Well, um, does it seem like um, it was supported by anything else, right? Uh, are people, you know, were people being threatened at the time, or were they, were they, there, were they going to gain something? Um, like, you know, the disciples, they didn't gain anything, right? They, they were shunned. They, you know, they, they were tortured. They had very hard lives. And so modern-day types of things, if we see instances where people gain things or, you know, they're, they're under duress or whatnot, we kind of worry about whether those uh, accounts um, are actually um, trustworthy. But interesting thing, there's a guy named Craig Keener who is a New Testament scholar, <clears throat> and he has a book, and by book... Uh, that's an understatement on miracles. Um, and he, but what he did is he traveled around the world documenting miraculous accounts. And he ended up with, it's two books, they're both about that thick. And the bibliography for the book, which is in the second part, the bibliography itself is that thick. Um, it's, it's, it's a bit crazy. And I would probably say, hey, yeah, there's probably a good chance that there's some stuff in there that eh, we might not want to believe. But it seems unlikely that all of it is, is a hoax, right? Um, and so, yeah, I think it applies to modern-day things as well. You guys are really quiet. <laughs> Popular level stuff. William Lane Craig is like the guy in the world of apologetics right now. He's my, he's like the, one of the guys that I started out on. Um, there's a guy named Greg Kokel who has a book called Tactics. Um, and Greg's not a philosopher. Um, yeah, I mean, he knows some philosophy, but he's not a philosopher. But his book's basically about how to ask the right type of questions. Um, and I think that is a great book. Um, and one of the things that I recommend if people are interested in apologetics or um, you know, try, want to use apologetics and evangelism type situations, that's a fabulous place to start out. Um, uh, Lydia McGrew, who is my professor's wife, um, who got a lot of this came from him, uh, she has a book, an entire book on, on design coincidences that I, I recommend. It's high school, like senior, junior, seniors, and up type range. Um, so you wouldn't want to give it this to, little, to teen, young teens or kids or anything, but because um, it can be slightly difficult to work through, but that's a really good one as well. Um, then there's like Ravi Zacharias. He's you know, got all kind of really good stuff. Uh, there's, there's a ton of people doing really good work in apologetics today. Um, there's huge, you know, kind of renaissance in apologetics. And so I could, the list would get really long really quickly. <laughs> Yeah, that's a fabulous book, and it's, um, it's good. We've used it with college students um, at Western Michigan University. There was the apologetics group there, and that's like one thing that they studied for a semester is just walking through that book and talking about how to have conversations, um, and that's a great place to start out. Yeah, um, and you, I like doing the really crazy philosophy stuff, but, you know, 
You don't have to do that. You can do stuff like this, historical studies. You can talk about problem of pain and suffering and whatnot. Um, and it's, you know, it's very much needed. I don't know if you guys saw, um, there's a guy, I can't remember his name now. He wrote the I Kiss Dating Goodbye book. You're right. Um, left the faith, said, hey, I don't believe the Christian faith anymore. Um, and that's very common for people who grew up in a very kind of uh, con- strongly conservative background who had tough questions that they were dealing with and they didn't get answers. Um, Bart Ehrman, very conservative when he was growing up, went to a conservative school, went to Moody, right? You know, he was a youth minister, yeah, um, and a seminarian, and you know, he did the whole thing. Uh, and you know, now he's strongly advocates against Christianity. Um, the, there's, there's this long list of guys who just really, really don't like Christians, and it's not usually to do with um, belief. Most of the time, they had a bad experience with religion, and it stems, in my opinion, it usually stems from that, or the fact that they had this really, really conservative background and were taught a bunch of rules, but not why they should actually believe the things that they believe. And then when they got to college or, you know, in the workforce, started asking, being asked tough questions, they didn't have anywhere to go. And they, they assumed, hey, all these other people are saying these things, and I don't see any answers. My pastor didn't see any, didn't tell me about this stuff. So looks like it's probably false. Um, and that's actually more common than you would expect. Mm, yeah. Right. Yeah. So, yes, yeah, second hardest question. You guys, like, not pulling any punches. That's actually a very hard question. Um, the way that I tend to do it is to say, can we look at the Bible and draw a narrative throughout the Bible that connects? If we can, if we can do that, then it looks like we can see that, hey, this is the same God that he always has been. Um, If the stuff in the New Testament doesn't line up with the Old Testament, I think we're in big trouble. Um, There there are people that tried to get rid of the Old Testament. Um, You know, we talked about uh, Marcion and other people who just did not like the Old Testament. Um, And I think that if we can't connect the New Testament like that systematically, kind of draw a big narrative between the two and associate the two and see how they connect, uh, I think we're in big problems. I think that's the way to do that, but it's very hard. I think there are some people who do it quite well. I am not a New Testament scholar. <laughs> I do philosophy because I got tired of lang- learning languages. <laughs> uh, and it's easier. All the stuff that I like reading is in English. Uh, but I think that's kind of how you start doing it. Can we draw a narrative and see that, hey, these are the same properties that we saw back here in the Old Testament um, as we see in the New Testament. And most of the time, people don't think about the fact that, you know, when we're talking about very Old Testament, you know, Job and whatnot, that was a very different world from the time of Jesus. It was a brutal world. Um, it was a very tough place to live. Um, and 
if we consider that, we should expect some of that to come through and what happened to the people in those stories. But I'm not sure that affects who God is. And if we see that God, if we see that God in the Old Testament has the same properties throughout, and there looks like there's some type of connection from the old to the new, then I think we can say, hey, yeah, it's the same God. Um, it's just different people in different times. Um, and there's a lot of really fun stuff that you can do with looking at prophecies from the Old Testament and their connection in the New Testament, and that seems also to support that. When you see prophecies in the Old Testament being lived out in the New Testament, that seems to connect the Old Testament as well, right? So. All right, 732? Okay. Let me close this in prayer, and then you guys can go. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us and that you loved us enough to give us the tools that we would need to be able to um, defend our faith when we need to, to share our faith with those who need it, and to have confidence that Jesus came and he died on a cross and he did that for us. And we praise you for those things. We ask that you would remind us of that as we go throughout the week. Let us glorify you in all that we do. In Christ's holy name, amen.